The following audio is from Morningstar Baptist Church in Dayton, Ohio. For more information about Morningstar, visit morningstardayton.org. We're wrapping up our series of Gather, Grow, and Go. And so you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, we're going to be there. They're going to be in Matthew chapter 28 here in just a minute. But the first week of this, we looked at that word gather and we, we talked about how we gather together because God created us to live in community. That God never created any of us to live in isolation or do life alone, that he wants us to live in community. The last week we looked at God created us to grow in community. That if 30 minutes to an hour every Sunday is the only time that we're going into God's word and going deep and trying to be fed spiritually, that we're actually starving ourselves and our relationship with God. And so this week we look at this word, go. And I know we're like, okay, well, those are really cool words, gather, grow, go. We even have signs of it out in our lobby. But where do we get it from? We just pull three words that start with G and like, hey, okay, let's just go with that. And then just plaster it everywhere and just create a whole. No, here's the deal. Who we are as a church is we are a safe place for people to find and follow Jesus. That we are always going to be about Jesus Christ and making him famous in all the world. It's all about the gospel and new life and forgiveness that's only found in him. And that's who we are. So as a church, we look at ways, how can we be a place where people can hear about Jesus find Jesus, and then also start to follow him. But how do we do that? And that's why we've, we followed up on these three words the last few weeks, because this is how we do that, by gathering, by growing together. And then what we're looking at today by this idea of we're going to go. We find these, these three words, and where we get this from is from the two greats in the New Testament. The two greats, what I mean by that is there's one called the great commandment, and there's one called the great commission. And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, what we find is a guy came up to Jesus and said, hey, what's the most important thing that God would want me to know in my life? What's the, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered him. He says this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. But what does that mean? What does it mean to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind? What Jesus is saying is like, look, you need to be consumed by God. That when we look at what God did for us through his son, Jesus Christ, when we understand grace, grace is that thing that God gives us that we don't deserve. And what God has given us is a brand new life. What he's given us is forgiveness. What he's given to us is eternal life. And so when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind, what he's saying is you need to understand what it really means for God to do through me, through Jesus, what I'm doing you got to understand what it meant for me to go to the cross, what it meant for me to lay my life down, what it meant for me to take the wrath of God on my life and on my body and on my person so that you don't have to experience that. So he says, you need to love God with everything. And what Jesus says, and then he, but he doesn't stop there. He goes, and, he says, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, well, I can kind of understand the love God part. Okay, yeah, God did so much for me through Jesus, but what does that have to do with my neighbor? What it means is when I understand and I'm consumed by the grace of God in my life, when God's overwhelming love and forgiveness and new life that he's given me, when that just knocks me down on my knees, I can't help but then want to share that with all everybody I know. 
I can't do anything else but help tell other people about God's grace. And that's what this idea of love God and love people comes from. And then we see the idea, though, is this, is that this word go, this idea of going to other people, we get that before we ever even get to the Great Commission. Before we ever get to that place where Jesus says, go into all the world, we get it already in the Great Commandment that if we love God, like we say we love God, then it's going to, the impact, the, the outcome of that is I'm going to love my neighbors myself. And the way I love myself is the idea that I like God's grace. I like the new life that he's given me. I like the fact that I get to spend eternity with God in heaven forever. Then I'm going to love my neighbors like I want them to know that. But then we get to the great commission found in Matthew 28. You can turn there. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, the last words that Jesus spoke. To his disciples, he said this in verse 18. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. One, because he's God. But two, because he just died, was buried and rose again. And by doing that, he beat death, hell and the grave. And so Jesus like, hey, look, I'm God, so I have authority anyway. But just in case you need an example of that, they killed me, buried me, but I came back to life. So because of that authority and because of that power, look at the very next verse. He says, verse 19, therefore go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. But Jesus, I want you to go into all the nations. That word nations in the Greek is, is ethnos. He doesn't, in that word, when we think of nations, we think of United States, Mexico, Canada, Russia. That's not the word that's used there. The word there is ethnos, which means people groups. It's where we get our word ethnicity from. Jesus, I want you to go to every people group. Every tribe, every tongue, and I want you to go and talk to them about me. So I want you to go to every people group. If there's people there, go to them and talk to them about Jesus. But he uses this word in Matthew, he uses that word nations or people. But I love how he puts it in Mark. In Mark chapter 16, Mark also records a conversation, uh, the similar thing of, of this, what we call the Great Commission. But Mark records Jesus using a different word. Possibly because this was an ongoing conversation the last few days that Jesus was here on earth. So this was probably not a one and done conversation. So Mark recorded this one. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus used a different word as our target. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The word world in Mark chapter 16 means cosmos. What it means, that cosmos means that anything in that Greek, it means anything that is ordered. It's usually used to denote particular political systems or uh, systems of fashion or systems found in any kind of different society, such as like your circle of friends or spheres of influence where you have um, in your life. So Jesus, in this conversation, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to go into all the cosmos. And I think that's so telling because Paul later on in 2 Corinthians refers to Satan as the god of this world. Little G God, not big G God. That Satan is the God of this world. What that means is that Satan has influence in this world. Satan has dominion in this world. Satan is not in control, by the way. God is sovereign. God is in ultimate control. But Satan wreaks havoc. 
And his dominion is here ever since the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned and they invited that darkness into their life and they broke fellowship with God. Satan has been running amok in our world. And I love that Jesus uses this word in this conversation when he says, I want you to go into all the world. What is he saying? I want you to take the fight to the devil. I want you to take the fight to the person, the entity, Satan, who thinks he has control. And I want you to be on the offensive and I want you to go toe to toe. Because I'm giving you a message of hope and peace and new life and eternal life. And I want you to take it to the darkest places of this world. I want you to take it to the cosmos. And in Matthew, in case we think, okay, well, I can just take it to different systems and different political systems. No, no. That's, we also are commanded to take it to every ethnicity. So take it to people and take it straight to where Satan thinks he has control. Now we can read the last book. We can read Revelation. We see Satan ultimately loses everything. And even now, God is still in control, but I love that Jesus says, look, the world systems are the sphere Satan has invaded where he exerts his influence, so take the fight to him. Church, I want you to invade the territory of darkness. I want you to invade the territory of hopelessness, of discouragement, of loss, of dead people, and I want you to go and give them the message of new life. The systems can be placed where you work. Going to all the world might be the fellow coworkers you see every day. The system Jesus is sending you to may be the school that you attend. It could be the office where you find yourself. It could be the social clubs or societies that you're a part of. It could be your very neighborhood. The place where you live, function, and have influence in other people's lives. So what does this mean for us, though? It means you don't have to go across the world and preach the gospel. That's what it means. See, maybe God's not calling you to go across the world and work on the border of North Korea and South Korea and help smuggle Bibles into the the believers in North Korea. Maybe God's not calling you to go work with the underground church in China, meeting in caves and in basements and cellars and out in the woods. Maybe God's not calling you to go across the world to Russia and go where they are so hungry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe God's not calling you to go across the Atlantic to England that used to be just a hub of Christianity and people who were on fire for God, but now they've got wrapped up into into, um, atheism and secularism and humanism and they just totally have turned their backs on God. Maybe God's not calling you there. Maybe God's not calling you to go across the Gulf of Mexico down to South America. But I want you to get this this morning. Church, look at me. Maybe you're not called to go across the world, but you and I are called to go across the street. Maybe you're not called to go across the world, but you and I are called to go across the office. Maybe we're not called to go across the world, but we are called to go across the cafeteria and the lunchroom. We are called to go into our cosmos, to our world. And you might say, okay, well, where's my mission field? Like, where do I go? I don't know what that looks like for me. And I love this. And Jesus had that same conversation with his disciples. He just got finished talking to this woman that was at the well in the middle of the day. And, and, and she was living with a man who wasn't her husband. She had this whole background of, of just a broken life. And then he talks about to her about the water of life. She goes back to her village. His disciples come up and like, why are you talking to a woman, man? Like, what's wrong with you? And he's having this conversation with his disciples. And then he sees behind them what's going on. This whole city. 
is now walking towards the well where he's at because the woman went back and told everybody, I met the Savior. Like, I met the Messiah. He's here, and they're coming. And you know what? His disciples, they were always clueless on what they were supposed to be doing. And you and I are the same way. So what Jesus told them in John chapter 4, he says, open your eyes and look around you. There's no secret formula. Like, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to talk to? Here's the deal. Open your eyes and look around you. He says, the harvest field is ready everywhere you're at. They're ready. They're hungry. They're eager right now to hear the gospel. And so for us, what does that mean? And this is going to come across as harsh. So buckle up this morning because it's going to get really intense for a minute. You know what that means for us? We got to put our phone down. You know what that means for us? We got to turn Netflix off. What it means for us is we've got to actually leave the front door of our house and go have a conversation with someone. We got to open our eyes. We live in a world of people, of ethnos, and we dwell in the cosmos, in the world that Satan right now is just ruining and wrecking the lives of people. And all we have to do, what Jesus says, is open your eyes. They are literally everywhere. And God created us to go in community because one person cannot talk to or reach every single person in the world. There's 7 billion people in the world. I can't talk to all of them, and neither can you. But if we go together, if we unite together and we go as community, if each one of us are faithful to engage our world, our cosmos, our mission field, then there would be no field, no cosmos, no ethnos ever unreached. It was a task that from the very beginning required group participation. Everybody had to do their part. It wasn't the pastor's mission. It wasn't the deacon's mission. It wasn't the extrovert's mission. It wasn't just for people who were single. It wasn't just for people who were young or people who were old. It wasn't just for people who didn't have kids or any other kind of responsibilities. It was their mission corporately. He was looking at a group of people when he said, I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel. I want you to go to every nation, every people group and make disciples. He was talking to a group of people. It was their mission and it's our mission. And we've got to go as community. Here's three benefits of going as community into the world. One, there's strength in numbers. There's strength in numbers. The Bible talks about in the Old Testament, Proverbs says a threefold cord is not easily broken. When you go together, it's hard to break that apart. It's hard to destroy or beat something when there's multiple people involved. There's strength in numbers. The second reason is this, there's encouragement in numbers. There's encouragement in numbers. I love the passage in Acts chapter 16. Paul's on his second missionary journey and and, and he gets to a town and he's got Silas with him. And they're going around, they're preaching, they're telling people about Jesus and people are getting saved, like left and right, people are coming to know Jesus. And the people that are there, they're living there, they don't like it, it bothers them. They get triggered by this because it offends them that these guys are talking about the only way to heaven is through Jesus and him crucified and putting your faith in him. And like, wait a minute, we have multiple gods. And like, how dare you come in here? Like, we don't like that. And so they took him and they threw both of them into prison. Before they got there, though, the Bible says in Acts 16, they beat them severely with rods across their backs. 
And then it says they took him, and I encourage you tonight, maybe as a family, maybe you go home tonight and you read Acts chapter 16 together. It's an amazing passage of Scripture. It says they took Paul, they took Silas, and they threw them in the deepest, darkest part of the, the prison, the inner prison, thick dungeon. And it says they put their feet in stocks. And we don't think about that too much. Like, what's the big deal about that? Well, what they would do is they, they clamp their feet down with, with shackles of iron, and they had a ring that was attached to the wall, and they ran a chain from their shackles through the ring into their hands, which means they're bent over like this. Now, they just got beaten severely, the Bible says, with a rod across their back. So you know what their back muscles are doing right now? They're just cramping. They're seizing up. They're getting tighter and tighter. They are on fire. They're burning. And on top of that, they're probably cut and bleeding on their back. And the one thing they want to do is be able to stretch that back out and work those muscles. And they can't because they have them bent over, shackled to their feet all night long. Now it's hard to breathe because the longer the night goes, the tighter those muscles get. The tighter those muscles get, the more pain and more anguish and the more they cramp. And in the middle of the night, when they would have been sitting there normally, what, what most of us would think is, let's, man, the only thing I can think of, I'm going to start crying. I'm going to start griping about this. What in the world? I'm preaching God. I'm preaching gospel. And now I'm beaten and thrown in prison. And I can't stretch out my back. I can't make this pain go away. All I want to do is lay down and take a deep breath. But I'm hunched over. And I'm chained to a wall in a prison. And, but instead of doing that, Paul and Silas start singing. They start singing, and the Bible says in Acts chapter 16 that they're singing so loud, the songs fill the whole jail. Everybody's able to hear them. And they're singing to God, but they're singing to one another to encourage one another. Why? Because there's encouragement when we go as community. It's an amazing passage. The third reason we go as community is because there's joy in numbers. There's joy. Like, when you're working a horrible job, a miserable job and you're by yourself, it's even more miserable, isn't it? Like it's just, like you're like, this is just the worst thing in the world. You add people to that job and all of a sudden it's more fun. You know why? Because most time you start making fun of each other, okay? And you start picking on one another, right? And it's just the group, the dynamic, it just makes it more fun. Growing up, I, I was working um, when I was in high school at, at, at this camp and we had a, a, a septic tank. And for those of you people who are city people, like when you flush your toilet, your, your stuff goes out to the treatment plant and stuff like that and it gets taken care of. In the country, we have big tanks. <laughs> and when you flush the toilet, it goes to the big tank. And the idea is that over time, the bacteria breaks everything down. But at a camp, when you have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids for year after year after year, flushing things are not supposed to flush down the toilet, septic tanks and pipes get clogged. And you know what you have to do? <laughs> you got to dig it up and lift the top lid off that septic tank. And sometimes somebody has to get in that septic tank and snake out the pipes. <laughs> and a lot of times it's the youngest person that's there, right? The person who hasn't done it before. And that's a miserable job, by the way. I don't want to paint the picture too much for you. That's not a fun job to do, all right? But you add people together, and all of a sudden, like that job that is horrible and wretched, now it becomes bearable. And some of you, maybe you could think through some times in your life where you've had some jobs and you had to, it was a miserable, but you have other people and it makes it a lot more fun. It makes it where you can get through it. It actually brings joy to the task. 
And when we go in numbers, that's one of the things, the benefits of that is we're able to, um, to rejoice with one another and have fun going together. Reaching our city and doing that together is more effective, it's more encouraging, it's more enjoyable than charging ahead by ourselves. Coming together as a group and pooling our resources together to support missionaries, to send people around the world is a lot more effective than me trying to do it by myself. Some of, maybe you're new to this whole church thing, like why do we pass an offering plate? Like I don't get that. Well, the reason is because as a group, when we go as community, we pool our resources together, we're more effective in reaching the world because it takes resources to do that. And I have limited resources and you have limited resources and you guys have limited resources, but when you pull all that together, we're more effective. And now we can reach even more people. But why are we missing this? Why are we missing this? 1956, there was a group of five young men that were in their late 20s. One was in his early 30s. All of them were married. Most of them were married under two years. All of them but one had children, very young children, babies. And yet these five men came together and they had a burden and a passion for a group of people in South America that had never heard the name Jesus ever. In fact, not only had they never heard the name of Jesus, but they had very little contact with the outside world at all. And these five guys, some of you guys might recognize their names, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian. They went down to Ecuador to the Hirani tribe. In fact, Nate Saint was already in the area, and he was a missionary pilot. He was flying around, dropping off supplies to different groups, but he actually got discouraged, and he got depressed. And in, in his writings, he was like, I don't, he was kind of, they were, he didn't understand, like, I'm just dropping stuff off. I'm not engaging anyone with the gospel, and it bothered him until he got hooked up with Jim Elliott. And they came up with this idea, hey, why don't we drop stuff off to this tribe that's never had any contact with outsiders and not just drop it off, but drop stuff off to give gifts to actually build a relationship so we can go talk to them about Jesus. And they started doing that. They started flying over this village, dropping off gifts at this one spot. And over time, they started, when they were flying over the spot, they realized the villagers actually started leaving them gifts. And they were building a relationship, and they were, so they started landing in that area. And they started trying to reach out and talk to people about Jesus. In one particular instance in 1956, they landed in the same spot. They waited, and three, three of the locals from the tribe came out. It was one, man, one young man and two young women, and, and they started hanging out with them. And these guys, these five missionaries, started talking to them about Jesus and God. And, and the young man was fascinated with the airplane. So they gave him a model airplane, a, a big wooden model airplane. And they even took him up in the plane for rides around the jungle. And as, as the, the story goes, as they were flying around real low, he would see some of the other tribes people. And this young um, local young man would, was waving out the airplane and yelling their names from the airplane. He was so happy to be a part of flying in the airplane. And then they went and they landed back and they, they hung out with these people for a little longer. And then the younger lady of the two got up and walked back to the village. There's a whole thing about the cultural thing. She walked back unaccompanied, which was like a big no-no um, in their tribe. And so some of the men were coming from the tribe, saw her walking at night through the jungle by herself. They got mad. They blamed the missionaries. And there was a whole misunderstanding. And they, they, raised, they rose up some other men. They showed up to the river where these five guys were at. And they speared all five of them to death. 
one at a time, cutting their life short. Five guys literally in the prime of their lives. And we look at that and we go, man, that's sad. And if we're not careful, we'll even go, you know what, it's not just sad, that's a tragedy. But is it? Is it really a tragedy? Five young men, the prime of their life, their life cut short, their wives left widowed, their kids left fatherless. Is this really a tragedy? I mean, they had their whole life ahead of them. They could have done anything. Two of them were World War II uh, veterans. Uh, one of them was an experienced pilot. The other two were super intelligent. They could have done anything, made a lot of money, retired comfortably, and died as old men. But yet they gave their lives. Before we answer that question, don't answer it too quickly, but think, is that really a tragedy? I would stand before you this morning and I would, and it sounds callous until I have a chance to explain it, but honestly, that's not a tragedy. It's sad. And our heart would have broken for their wives and for their children. But you want to know what the real tragedy is? Church, do we really want to know what the most really horrible thing is? Is that this lie that we've all bought into that our only purpose in life is to experience the American dream? That as the church of God, we've gotten to the point here in our westernized Christianity that is watered down and so comfortable and so soft that we've bought into this lie that that's really our only purpose in life is to experience this American dream. And we even, we even sometimes very arrogantly compare the American dream that we're pursuing with God's blessing in our life. Get a spouse, hopefully an attractive one, right? Have your 2.3 kids, whatever the average is up to. Get a nice job, work your way up the ladder of that job and own a home and upgrade your home as your finances grow. Work 20 or so years and, and, and then enjoy a comfortable retirement, sell your house and buy the RV and travel the country. Wearing our Bermuda shorts and flower shirts and getting our nice tan. And, and listen, what I'm, none of that is bad. By the way, I'm not, I'm not saying that any of that is a horrible thing, nor am I saying that God is mad at you if that's the track that you're on. What I'm saying this morning is if that is our only drive in this life, then we are in the wrong if that's all we're pushing for, then we have totally been blinded by exactly what the God of this world wants us to be blinded by. This is the real tragedy. That, and this, this concept would have been so foreign to this early church in Acts that we talked about a couple weeks ago. As they gathered in community, grew in community, and went out as a community. And the reason that would have been foreign to them is this. In Mark chapter 8, if you don't have it, we're going to have it up on the screen. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Verse 35 said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Now here's the deal. You and I right now, this is a comfortable place. We're not, none of us right now at this very moment are being called upon to give our physical life and die for Jesus Christ. So does that mean we can't follow him? No. 
Because what Jesus is saying is, if we want to save our life, we have to be willing to lose our life. And here's what it means for you and I who aren't facing death right now for being a Christian. What it means is I gotta take my life and say, I'm gonna take me, I'm gonna set me aside. I'm, going to, I'm willing to lose my life, not necessarily that I'm gonna die, but I'm going to lose what I want. I'm gonna lose what I desire. I'm gonna lose my dreams. I'm gonna set that aside to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, if you don't do that, you're not a follower. If we're trying to save our life and we're trying to grab onto everything we can in this westernized idea of Christianity and the American dream, what Jesus is saying, look, then you're not a follower. Because if you're a follower, you're willing to say, here's my life. I'm going to offer it on the sacrifice, like Paul says in Romans 12. I'm going to present my body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is my reasonable service. I'm going to take John. I'm going to put him here. I'm going to put Christ at the very center. And that's what it means to go in community. And that's why this idea of what our church, churches like now, look like now in America will look so foreign to that first early church. Because they took them and they put it aside. And they said, it's all about Jesus in me. The real tragedy is the amount of wasted lives of believers who are good people but never did anything great for God. The real tragedy is the grave markers filling our cemeteries in this nation, going back from the very beginning, who were good people, decent, hardworking people, raised good families, but never did anything great for God. That is the tragedy. The tragedy also continues that even now, more and more, every day, more people are ushered into eternity who are good people, but never did anything great for God. who live comfortable, boring lives, whose end game was only to get to retirement as early as possible and take it easy. Thinking that somehow God is pleased when we show up to heaven in our Bermuda shorts and our flower shirts and our hats. Man, glad you took it easy, John. Congratulations. No, what we long for is to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful Servant. There's a big difference between how we're doing church today and how Christ died for the church and wanted the church to be. The Great Commission says go. The Great Commandment says love God passionately and love others relentlessly. In the area of our gathering, Satan uses isolation as his tool to keep us discouraged and alone and idle. And in the area of our going, what we're talking about today... Satan uses the American dream to keep us good but not great. To keep us successful but not significant. Jim Elliott, one of the missionaries that died that day on that river in 1956, they found his journal. And his journal's been published. You can look it up and read some of the things that he wrote. And I just, man, it's powerful. One of the things he wrote down was one of his prayers that he prayed, and here's what he prayed. He said, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or other on facing Christ in me. Our prayers go like this. God, be with me. Help me with this test. God, we need money for this bill. God, be with Aunt Martha and her surgery. 
His prayer was, God, I wanna be a crisis man. God, my prayer is that when people meet me, I'm not just another marker in the road of their life. I'm a fork that because they met Christ in me, they're forced to make a decision because they came face to face with Jesus Christ and his hope and his forgiveness and his restoration and his new life. And I want them to know, man, there's a decision I have to make. I wanna be a crisis man. He went on to say, we are so utterly ordinary. We're so commonplace. While we profess to know a power the 20th century does not reckon with, but we are harmless and therefore unharmed. We are spiritual pacifists, non-militants, conscientious objectors in this battle to the death with principalities and powers in high places. We are sideliners and leave the enemies of God unchallenged. And he finished that up by saying, oh, that God would make us dangerous. I love that line. Oh, that God would make the church dangerous. Satan, the God of this world, has been unchallenged far too long in our nation today. Oh, that God would make Morningstar Baptist Church dangerous. Not to people, but to the principalities and the rulers of darkness that we would take the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world and lives would be changed, souls would be saved, people's eternities would be altered, that God would make us dangerous. His most famous quote of all time, Jim Elliott said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, which is our life. for that which he cannot lose, which is our eternal life. See, it's a sad story, man. Five guys cut down, it's horrible. We think, man, that's bad. But it's not a tragedy. In fact, that's not the end of the story. Nate Saint had a sister named Rachel. Rachel and a handful of other missionaries went back to Ecuador, right back to the same Hirani tribe. And the amazing thing is, as these other missionaries work with them, the, almost the entire tribe came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And it was an amazing thing that happened. This tribe literally turned around because they heard the gospel. Because five guys were willing to lay down their life. Five men in the prime of their life were willing to say, this is me. I'm going to put me here. I'm going to put Christ here. And whatever he has for me, I'm going to be that person. And because of that, an entire group of people, an entire ethnos, came to know Jesus Christ. And what I love is this story. Nate Saint had a little boy when he died. His little boy's name was Stephen. Stephen, after his father died, would go back and visit um, his aunt in, 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 in Ecuador. And he would go visit with the tribe. And he, would, he pretty much grew up knowing the people and loving the people. And when Stephen got saved, when he came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior, he was baptized by a man named Minkaye. Micaiah came to know Jesus Christ because of the work of the missionaries who went back after the five died. And Micaiah was actually the very one who killed his dad. But years later, because Jesus is powerful and the gospel is, it, it breaks barriers down, it transcends cultures, it transcends society, it transcends politics, it beats everything. The gospel came and Micaiah came to know Jesus and he baptized the son of the very person he killed. How awesome is that? My question this morning is this. Where are the Jim Elliots and the Nate Saints? 
where are the Rachel saints? Where have they all gone? Where have the soldiers of God gone to? Where have all the godly men gone? Where have all the godly women gone? Where have all the followers of Christ gone that said, it's not me, I'm over here, it's Christ. Where have we gone? Are there any left? I firmly believe, church, I firmly believe that God is not done calling people to go across the world and preach the gospel. And maybe you're one of them. I firmly believe that God is not done. He's still calling men and women to go, calling people who are willing to go around the world for the sake of Christ. But where are those who are willing to go across the street? Where are the ones who are willing to go next door? Where are the ones willing to have a conversation with our waiter at the restaurant? We need to go as a community, and it's all tied together. When we gather together, we encourage one another for going. When we grow together, we equip one another for going. When we go together, we increase the numbers of those who are gathering, and the circle repeats itself. I'm not the smartest man in the world. I promise you that. I am way far from it. I don't know a whole lot. One thing I do know I don't want to live for me anymore. One thing I do know I'm not okay with my prayers being as shallow as they have been. One thing I do know is I'm not okay with people around me not hearing the gospel, not seeing Christ in me and me being okay with that. I'm not okay with that anymore. I'm going. I'm going across the street. I'm going to everybody I meet, but here's the deal. I don't want to go alone. And that's why God gave us a church. And I'm inviting and I'm challenging us as Morningstar, let's go together. Let our prayers be this moment forward. God, make us a crisis people that when people see us, they see Christ in us and they are forced to make a decision. Wow, there is hope and eternal life or there's the same life I've always lived. Let us be that people. And let us, not, let's, let us be the people now who maybe God's not calling us to go across the world, but let's be the people to understand that God is calling us to go across the street, that God is calling us to go to our family member. God is calling us to go to our schoolmate. God is calling us to go to our friends. And we're going to go together. And we're going to be dangerous because we're going to invade this cosmos. We're going to invade Satan's territory, and we're going to take the gospel of Jesus Christ right to their doorstep for his glory and not ours. Let me have you bow your head this morning, church, and close your eyes for just a moment. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you have any questions about Morningstar Baptist Church or today's message, visit morningstardayton.org and choose Contact Us.